And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat sacrifice, things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. <clears throat> well, as you read our text this morning, I trust that you picked up on the, the accent, or at least I tried to make sure we picked up on the accent of verse 13. That is, as Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum, at the front end and the back end of one of his statements here in verse 14, or rather in verse 13, he accents the fact that they live in the place where Satan dwells. They live in the place where Satan has erected his throne. And as we think about that this morning, we are reminded of the perpetual position of the church. As we think about that double reference to Satan and his dwelling among them, we are reminded of the perpetual position of the church. And Jesus speaks about this in John 17. And there Jesus says, I've given them your, serve, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus makes it abundantly plain. There's something that is unique about the believer. They are not of the world. Two times, just so we didn't forget. We are not of the world. Yet the thrust of the text is... Not just that they're not of the world, but the thrust of the text is, you're in the world. This is the perpetual position of the church, that God does not take the church out of the world. And so here's this thing that's happening as, uh, really we could see at the heart of the dynamic of the Christian life, is there is this simultaneous overlapping experience of the believer, that we're not of the world, while at the same time, we are in the world. This is the perpetual position of the church. And when we think about that word world, and we hear that, world, that word world, we remember what John meant by it. It has all of the dark, morally and spiritually corrupt overtones that, that John means by this word when he uses it. How about 1 John 2.16? For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It is not from the Father. It's of the world. 
Whenever you hear John talk about the world, and I know Jesus is talking about the world, but, but there's a consistent theme when in John's writing this word is used, the world means everything that's dark, everything that's morally and spiritually bankrupt and corrupt. And John itemizes that for us here. The lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes and the boastful pride of life. And by the way, the word there for life means bios. It means possessions. It's the pride and the boasting that people have in the things that this world thinks are strong. Like how many garages you have and what kind of cars are in them. This is the language of the world. This is the thought process of the world. This is the mindset of the world. And the thing that Jesus says is that he doesn't take his church out of the world. He leaves it right in the middle of all of this. And the reason is because Christ has a mission for his church. And that mission for his church is spelled out with all kinds of plainness in all kinds of texts and scripture. But how about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says there's two things that are unique about the church of Jesus Christ in this age. Number one is it's to be a lamp. At all times, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a gigantic lamp pole holding up the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the other mission given to the church is that the church in the midst of this world, in a perpetual evil and fallen age, is to be salt, which is a preservative agent, which is a a refreshing agent, a renewing agent. So this is the call of the believer and this is the call of the church right in the midst of the context which is hostile to our faith. And there's the problem. That is precisely the problem. The call isn't the problem. The context in which the call is lived out. Jesus highlights that here as he addresses the church at Pergamum this morning from the word of God. You see, as we begin to peel back the layers of Christ's address to the church, Pergamum, it's very clear that this church, at least some within it, are behaving like believers. Some of them really are sincere in their profession, and Jesus Christ highlights it and spotlights it, and he praises it and he commends it. But here's the problem. Not just is it the case that some in the church are not, the problem is also this. People who are actually living out the faith as they ought are at the same time being accommodating to what they know is false and what is spiritually dangerous and they're allowing within their midst that which is contrary to Christ and His Word and His truth. They're tolerant. They're a tolerant church. So what did Jesus say to the church at Pergamum? Repent. And here are the three scariest words that I am coming for. I am coming for you. Is that five? But that's not even the scary part of the text. It's not just that he says, I'm coming for you. He says, I'm coming for you, not with a paddle in my hand, but with a sharp sword coming out of my mouth. And I'm coming to make war with you. That's a sobering message. The design of it is not to scare the church. The design is not to discourage the church. 
The design of it is to call the church to repentance and amendment of life. And Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum is the message to us. It's how do you be in a fallen world? That's the message. How do you be in a fallen world? How does the church take up its calling to fulfill its mission and its purpose in spite of the perpetual context of fallenness which surrounds it? And Jesus says, I got three points. Three points. Persevere in your profession, separate from evil men and evil ideas, and fix your eyes upon promises. So let's think about those. We've got three simple points here. Persevere in profession. And as we think about that first point, I, I think it's worthwhile to take a minute here to situate ourselves within Pergamum. And uh, I doubt the geography matters to you too much. If you'd like to know, though, it sits on a, on a mountain plain. It's about 10 miles inland from the Aegean, and it was a large city with vast material and financial resources. But the real thing about Pergamon isn't its financial prosperity, which had plenty of. The thing that you need to remember when you think about Pergamon is its temples. It had a huge temple to Zeus. By the way, it's called Zeus Soter. So there was a, an evangelical fervor uh, about this cult of Zeus. It was also overrun with the cult of Caesars and the worship of Caesars. And they also uh, was the seat and the home of the cult of Asclepius. It's a tongue twister, isn't it? Asclepius. But all of you know who Asclepius is and what the symbol of Asclepius is because you've seen it every time you go to your doctor. It is the catus with two snakes or serpents intertwined around it. It is the official symbol of the American Medical Association. You see it every time you go to the hospital. Asclepius. And Asclepius was a, a cult promising salvation. And it had almost an evangelical fervor about it because the very catus, of which is the heart of the symbol of Asclepius, comes from the Greek world, which means preacher. They were blood earnest about seeking converts for the snakes. This is the context of Pergamum. This is the place where Jesus says, Satan dwells on a throne. But the thing that strikes us here when you think about all of that is uh, the profession of the church. And, and I want to say it's a beautiful uh, profession here. As you begin to look into what Jesus actually says to the church now in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And, and by the way, um, the New American Standard leaves out something that Jesus says here. Because uh, the first thing that Jesus says to the church is not, I know where you dwell. The first thing that Jesus says to the church is, I know your works. Different manuscript traditions are behind texts, and this is, doesn't have the right one in the New American Standard. So the very first thing that is in the text is Jesus' affirmation about the church at Pergamum. He says, I know your works. And the verb know there is, has a sense of, 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 of knowledge based upon observation and inspection. For, for Jesus to, to make that the lead thought to the congregation here at Pergamum is to say that their profession, as bold and strong and, and orthodox and clear as it is, 
isn't just a set of empty and hollow words. Their life matches their profession. They live the Christian faith. That's exactly what Christ is saying to them. First of all, I know your works. You're earnest about the law and obedience. And showing that by your life. Jesus also isolates their confession, and it's, it's a powerful one. In verse 13 here, the next thing that Jesus says about them after he talks about uh, the place in which they live out this faith, he, uh, he says to them, and you hold fast my name. You see here, I wonder what John thought when he heard that. The name of Jesus. You know why I asked that question? is because way, way, way back down memory lane, about 70 years before this, Peter and John were standing in the midst of the Sanhedrin and were threatened with being jailed and beaten yet again. And Peter stands up before them and he declares the name of Jesus Christ to them. He says, there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Remember that little office conversation I said I had with you last week? or Not with you, but I gave you the substance of it. Uh, my, my friend asking his professor who had a, a rabbinical scholar in his class, uh, are, are Messianic Jews Jews? And my clinical supervisor had to come in and say, well, I got the answer from that from my rabbinical teacher. And, and he said, no. There's no such thing as Messianic Judaism. We don't believe in a Messiah. We're Christless. That's not what Peter says. And he was born a Jew. And he's addressing the Sanhedrin, which is full of Jews. And he says, this is the one who you were waiting for. And his name is Jesus. And he's Savior Christ isolates the name here as he refers to the church at Pergamum. He says, you hold fast my name. And, and that's shorthand for seeing you are seeking nothing but the blood. And by the way, that verb hold fast is a powerful one. Nothing can pry the faith of Jesus Christ for salvation from their cold dead fingers. They, they believe in the Christ. Just like you do. They believe in the shed blood. They hold it fast. We realize what Pergamum is. We're going to see about this more in a moment. It's a remarkable statement. He says something else here about them. He says, and you don't deny my faith. That verb deny here is a, is a technical term. It means to disassociate from somebody. In other words, it means to have nothing to do with them. To, to separate them. To, to cut them off. 
And the thing that Jesus says about them is they have not denied the faith. And here the faith should be generalized in terms of those great articles of the Holy Christian Catholic faith, the things that we've just confessed here as we confess the Apostles' Creed. Those things which every single real and true believer has always confessed throughout the history of the church. That we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, the maker of the heavens and the earth, and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. All of those things, they, they confess and they affirm and they uphold. They don't, they don't deny them. And, and the thing that makes this so, so powerful, and by the way, the way it's crafted here rhetorically is absolutely brilliant because I want you to come to the text with me now and see the great peril of making this profession. Because as I've already indicated here, I, I, I trumped my point, I guess, already, but I've wanted to make much of the point. I know where you dwell I know where you be. I know the context in which you are holding fast to this faith and not denying the faith. And he says, it's the place where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed in your midst. The first part of the context which makes this profession of faith so utterly remarkable is the prospect of death. Jesus references a man named Antipas. Um, If you like, go to a, a library and pull off every commentary that's there from the book of Revelation. And in every commentary, you will find a different explanation for who Antipas was. In fact, if you were to track that all the way back to the ancient church and move all the way forward, we could see there's probably as many positions and theories on who Antipas is as there's a number of people who have commented on it. And do you know what the real heart of the story about Antipas is? He's anonymous. That's the point. He is anonymous. And the key about him is that Jesus Christ noticed something. He was killed and he died for the faith. You see, the remarkable testimony about Antipas is that instead of flinching, he went to the stake and he died. He was martyred for the sake of the faith. Every time we hear that, every time I hear it, at least I, I get the chills to think that somebody died for believing in Jesus Christ. Every time I, I think of the devotion of, of people who would lay down everything for Christ, it, to me it's just gripping. Think of Polycarp, we spoke of him last week, who, who preferred the flames of the fire for himself rather than for sacrificing to Caesar. I think of that great host of witnesses who were cast into the Colosseums in antiquity and ripped to shred by wild beasts. I think of all of the people throughout the history of the church who died because they were believing in the truth and they were persecuted by false religion. I think of the people who went to their death in China and Russia and Cuba uh, under the hands of communist regimes. I think of people who have died at the hands of Muslim extremist fundamentalists. I I think of people who gave everything for the faith because they would not turn. 
That's what Jesus is saying about these people in Pergamum. They lived where Satan's throne was, and yet they didn't deny the faith. See, how do you do that? And I think one way you might do that is by just looking at Jesus' commendation. I know the martyrdom of Antipas. I think one of the things that we're to learn from the lack of clarification about Antipas is simply this. Jesus Christ knows who all the anonymous Christians are. Imagine people sitting in jail cells in the dark. Imagine you, you're toiling at your house and you've got children running all over and you're discouraged and overwhelmed by everything that you have to do and you wonder, is it worth it to be a Christian wife? Imagine it's you and you're sitting in commute traffic and you just turned on the radio and you realize the 405 is going to be jammed up for two more hours and you don't have enough time to get everything done that's on your schedule. Imagine all the things that we do and we sit around sometimes and we can get into that, that season of being glum and gloom thinking, no one knows everything that I'm going through. No one knows about what's going on in my life. We feel like anonymous and unnoticed Christians. And Jesus says, no one's anonymous to me who loves me. And clings to me by faith. Can you imagine that? If you really believe that, how would that change your life? You are not anonymous to Jesus Christ. I remember early on in the ministry, I visited a lady in the rest home quite often, and she was in her advanced 80s. She had lost everybody she knew. This problem with living too long, our culture is obsessed with squeezing out 2.5 more months or years. But it's really sad to people who live out everybody they know. They outlive their children, they outlive their siblings, they outlived their friends. And she outlived everybody. And uh, she was in a rest home. It's the place where you go to not be noticed. And to die, and no one notices it when you die. Besides, they need the room cleaned. She couldn't walk because her bones were piercing through her heels. So all she could use to get around with was a wheelchair. And in visiting with her, I felt uh, like I was being put to shame. (laughs) Because this woman, with all of her faith, lit up that nursing home and served everybody she possibly could when no one knew her name. You see, it was her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that made her whole. She believed that the Savior loved her. And because of that, her light shined. This is precisely what Jesus is commending here about Pergamum. We don't know who Antipas is. I'm sure they did, but to that anonymous believer, Jesus makes him notorious to history. We at least know his name and what happened. He was murdered for the faith. Jesus Christ takes notice of you, believer. He sees you as you serve him.
persevere. The other thing about the context here, I've repeated it to the point of ad nauseum, maybe I don't even have to talk about it. Satan's throne is there. And you know, we say, well, maybe they should have packed up the U-Haul and moved to Ephesus. That's why I loved Robert Murray McShane's comment, great Scottish preacher from the 19th century. He said this, without any fault of our own, it can happen that the believer is situated in a place where evil reigns. That's so true. You may have gotten saved in a place where evil reigned. By providence, you may have been located in a place where evil reigns. Some of you this morning may think your place of employment is where evil reigns. Some of you may think your co-workers are where evil reigns. Some of you may think your neighborhood is where evil reigns. Some of you may think the, the school or the college where you go is where evil reigns. Well, the idea here is pretty obvious. There is a kingdom of darkness and there are spiritual which are arrayed against us don't have to live in the heart of what people think is darkness to be where there is darkness. It is the situation of the church. Perpetually, we are going to live in a fallen, evil world. And yet, the people of God in Pergamum held fast the faith. That's what you're called to do. Whether martyrdom or whether evil, that's your calling. I got to thinking about this and I remembered what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And the implication here is that Jesus is speaking about two types of people. There's the kind of person that comes to him and confesses Christ and perseveres in confession. And there's the other kind of person who confesses Christ and then falls away from Christ. See, Jesus here is introducing two different types of confessors. One who perseveres and one who falls away. And I just want you to notice, people of God, just for yourself this morning, in case you're thinking about falling away, I want you to know the implication of that. Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. And yet, the Word of God is full of testimony to people who fall away. And sadly, our experience here as a congregation is a testimony of a lot of people falling away. Paul talks about people who fall away because they refuse to take care of their families. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who sneak into the church and then end up denying the Savior Jesus. All kinds of people who fall away. Jesus says there's great danger in it. This is a place when Pergamum could have fallen away. And so one of the things that's the point this letter to the church is to say don't fall away. Keep persisting in this faith which you confess. He's saying that to you this morning. Don't fall away from this faith. 
Why do people fall away, though? And the answer is because it's hard. Jesus speaks of the great difficulty. He is very realistic as a Savior, right? Matthew 24, 9. They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. And you will be hated by my name because of my name. See, that's realism. We've gotten used to Hallmark card Christianity. But, but Jesus doesn't talk that way. He says, people are going to hate you because you believe in Jesus. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. He says, there's some who are like the rocky road here. The seed falls upon it. The sprout shoots forth and looks promising. And then it withers and dies in a moment. Why? Because Jesus says, when affliction or persecution arises, because of the Word, He follows away. You see, some people are into Christianity because of the good stuff. That's the truth. Some people are into Christianity because of the good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. There's the doctrine. There's the worship. There's the fellowship of the people of God. There's the identity of being a believer. But the problem is, it's not going to be enough good stuff if you start suffering for your faith. It's not going to be. Think of there are any Christians this morning sitting in the city of Kabul while the, the forces of the Taliban are breathing down the neck of that city right now as we speak. I wonder if there's somebody sitting there right now saying, is it worth it? Because they know what's going to happen. That's exactly the situation here. Is it worth it? You see, one reason why I decided to preach this series on the book of Revelation, well, not the book of Revelation, on the seven letters. If John Calvin was prudent enough not to preach on it his whole ministry career, I think I'm okay not to either, at least not now. But the seven letters is, uh, you know, what the world needs today is, is the church to be a church. That's the honest truth. The reason why I decided to preach this series right now is because the church, the world needs the church to be the church. And the last several decades in America, what's flourished is a form of Christianity that's called just the good stuff. Just the good stuff. And then COVID hit. And with the roaring of a paper tiger, the church fled. I'm not demeaning the sorrow and the pain and the suffering and even the death. I'm just saying it's nothing compared to giving up your life for Jesus Christ. You see, what we need to be taught about is how to be the church. And these letters are teaching the church how to be the church. And what could be a harder place to be the church than in Pergamum? When the prospect of death and Constant satanic opposition is breathing down your neck. How do you do this? How do you keep holding fast to the faith and, and to the name of Christ? I kept thinking about that, and I think it boils down to this. Why do you love Jesus Christ? It's as simple as that. 
Why do you love Jesus Christ? Don't give me the answer and don't tell me something you think I want to hear because it doesn't matter to me. You're the one that will have to answer for it, so you better be something worth it. Why do you love Jesus Christ? You see, I think that's the only thing that will keep people strong when they hear the, 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 the snap and pop of the flames which are being lit for them is why do I love Jesus Christ? Saying the right answer doesn't matter. I've heard far too many right answers. In fact, everybody that has ever abandoned the faith that I know of had right answers. Once. So I don't care about the right answers. People of God, you need to answer the question, why do you love Christ? And when you have that answer, use your roots of faith to sing. How does the church be the church in the midst of the world? Number one, persevere in your profession. Number two, separate from evil men and evil ideas. Jesus comes and he says, I have a complaint against all of you people. And this is a really hard complaint for me to hear because everything that he said so far sounds really good. Jeez, I, I I wish I was as good as these Pergamum. This is amazing. They haven't flinched in the face of losing their debt, their life. For Jesus Christ. What's wrong? Well, Jesus is very clear about what's wrong. Uh, verse um, 14. You, you have their summer holding the teaching of Balaam. Now Jesus doesn't accuse everybody in the church of holding the teaching of Balaam, by the way. It, if he taking everything he just said about them, he would be falsifying it. Okay, So it's clearly everyone in the church that's holding the teaching of Balaam. And by the way, what is the teaching of Balaam? It's about as well understood as who Antipas was. <laughs> you remember who Balaam was, right? He was the guy, the wizard that Balak, king of Moab, hired to curse Israel while they were coming up through the plains of Moab to take the promised land, 40 years after they left Egypt. Long and short of it is that Instead of bringing forth blessing, or rather curse, God rebuked him with a donkey, and he brought forth four blessings upon the people of God. <laughs> Wonderful. So what did he teach? What was the problem with Balaam? Well, if you fast forward to Numbers 31, what you find out is this. Moses gathered together the, the, the military leaders of Israel, and he accused them of... Um, of sin because they didn't put to death the Moabite women who followed the counsel of Balaam. What was Balaam's counsel? We don't know, but we can draw forth the inference from what did they do. The Moabite women um, tempted the covenanted men of Israel with sex and idolatry. Thousands. Thousands. You see, the counsel of Balaam to Balak was, oh, all you want me to do was make it difficult on them? I can't bring a curse on them. But here's the problem. The problem is their heart. They love sinful things. Just put that in front of them. That's better than a curse. 
That's more effective than a curse. So I don't know precisely what this business of Balaam is, but, but Jesus sort of interprets for it at the end to eat a thing sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. That seems to be whatever the problem was, and as they are surrounded by all of these uh, pagan cults, yes, um, this was a part of the religion. And, and maybe one reason why some of the Christians had to do it, because if they wanted to keep their job, that's how you did it. Instead of going to the bar and the nightclub, you hung out at the temple where all this stuff was. You have a meal and, you know. And they could have reasoned, I'm doing it for a good cause. After all, I, I got to keep, I got to pay the bills. Antinomianism. They're tolerating it. Here's the other thing that they're tolerating. And it's not that much easier to understand. Verse 15, uh, you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we saw them before and, um, again, not well understood. Most people think it has something to do with legalism. Because if you take Nicolaitans and you break down its Greek roots, give me a word, Nikos conquer, Laos is people, conquering people. So who take the position that they were legalists and authoritarians and they were radical and they had a false understanding of Christianity. Whatever it is, when Jesus comes to you in verse 4 and says, therefore repent, you know it's bad. If you have to repent of it, it can't be right, okay? Jesus does not call us to repent for righteousness. So whatever you think of is the problem with the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, when Jesus plants that word, therefore, as a pivot away, saying, based upon this, you need to do something, that means it's bad. Repent. Turn away from it with a 100 degree, 180 degree precision. Break it. Run. Flee. Go. Leave behind evil men and evil ideas. See what the church is supposed to do in the midst of the world? You separate from evil men and evil ideas. They both hold together. Ideas don't perpetuate themselves. People perpetuate ideas. So Jesus is saying to the church, here's how you be. The way you be is you separate from evil men and evil ideas. He says, I can't tolerate it. And then the warning is the most terrifying that we've seen so far, I think. Because Jesus doesn't just say, I'm coming. It's not just like a mom saying to her child, keep that up, but dad's coming home. It's not like that. It's worse. Because dad doesn't usually come home to make worth a child. With a sharp double-edged sword. No, Jesus Christ is coming to the church and he's saying, I'm going to pulverize you in wrath. I cannot tolerate that which is named by my name to associate with Balaam and the Nicolaitans. He threatens war. And the word for sword is Ramphia, a gigantic double-edged sword which in a single swing could take your head off. You see, by the, by the promise that he's coming with his sword, it's to, it's to dramatize the threat here as he says, you really better do this now. 
Because the consequences are, are so bad that if you don't, it's over. So upon the pain of threat to the church, we are called to separate from evil men and evil ideas. And that's something that is very against the grain of our church world today because most people don't care about evil men and evil ideas as long as there's a lot of people there. Right? As long as it's a gigantic church building with lots of activities and a huge parking lot and it feels like everybody knows your name and you're somebody because you go there, then you can do whatever you want. In fact, the real gospel may not even be presented there. Because it seems to me what we did in our culture is, is we replaced this Jesus with his blood with gimme Jesus. And gimme Jesus is gimme this and gimme that. That's modern Christianity. Gimme this and gimme that. And Jesus says no. The church that's going to be in the world and bear my name is going to be the church that respects this sword. I will hear the word of God and what Christ has to say to me and I will repent. That's the church that Jesus can bear in the world. The sword-bearing Jesus, the sworn people of God, is a difficult image to swallow, but it's for all of us here. Christ is speaking to you this morning. As Jesus brings the double-edged Ramphia, sharp sword this morning, He's bringing it to every one of us here this morning. The sword-bearing Christ would speak to all of us. And what the sword-bearing Christ says to every one of us is, repent of your sins. Humble yourselves before God. Take the law and convict yourself of your sins so that you will run to the cross. Because if the church doesn't do that, the church won't love the gospel. And if the church stops loving the gospel, it'll stop being the church. People of God, don't, I plead with you, don't become tired and bored with the gospel. Don't become tired and bored with the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ is for me every single day of my life. If I don't think of it that way, I don't understand Christianity. And the only way I will ever have that joy in the gospel every single day of my life is I remind myself how far I have fallen short of the glory of God and failed to keep His commandments. And if that is not my mentality every day of the Christian life, knowing my sins and misery and running to the cross of Jesus Christ, I don't understand Christianity and I won't be per uh, persevering in my profession. People of God, let's hear the sword-bearing Christ this morning. It's not just for dramatic effect. He's threatening the church in Pergamum and saying, in spite of all the good things you're doing, I'm going to take you out. I would rather have no church in Pergamum than one that refuses to separate from evil men and evil ideas. 
All right, I'm almost done here. Last point, quickly. The focus on the promises. First thing the church does as it be in the world is it perseveres in profession. Number two, it separates from evil men and ideas. And then finally here in verse 17, it focuses on the promises. And one of the things here is that each one of the things that is said by way of promise is kind of difficult to understand and kind of not. Manna, do you all know what manna is? Of course you do, because you read the Bible. It's that bread that fell down from heaven and miraculously sustained the, the people of God for 40 years in the wilderness. And then Jesus in the New Testament, John chapter 6 says, I am the bread which comes down out of heaven. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We know what it means. The manna is Christ. What's this rock? Jesus says, I'll give you a white rock. Probably the best way to say it is a rock means durability and white in the book of Revelation is about holiness. So it's about an enduring holiness or righteousness and what is that? Well, it comes from Jesus Christ. To be washed and cleansed in his blood. And to know the full implications and outworking of that in eternity. The new name, what's that? You can go lots of different ways on that. It could be the name of Christ revealed to you in greater depth in eternity. Or the new name could be a new character which will um, be confirmed and, and beyond what you can conceive of right now. In glory. But the point of every promise that Jesus makes here to the church is this. You live in the swamp. You live in a swamp. Don't become attracted to its smell. And this is the perennial problem we face. We become attracted to the smell and the flavor And the trappings and the promises of this age. And people live their whole life that way until sometimes they get on their deathbed and they are riddled with regret and fear. And it's terrifying to see it in the eyes of people as they stare back at you. Jesus is saying to every one of us here, train your eyes off of this. Asclepius has nothing to offer you. Zeus has nothing to offer you. Caesar has nothing to offer you. Disneyland has nothing to offer you. Your cable television has nothing to offer you. Fix your eyes upon the promises. Look beyond this to the horizon and the full outworking of grace and the hope of the gospel. You see, what Jesus is trying to do is animate the church. He's called them to repentance. He's saying, replace that with what's right. And then while you're doing that, here is the food and nourishment of your soul to persevere in being the church as I'm calling you to be. That's our message this morning, people of God. Christ is teaching us how to be. It's by persevering, separating, and fixing our eyes on hope. Because he has a great calling for us. Here I am at the end of the message here, and I'm coming back to where I began with John 17. I told you from John 17 that Jesus emphasized the fact that there's these two overlapping realities about the believer. We're not of the world, <laughs> but we're in the world. 
How do we pull this off? How do we do what Jesus just said to the church? How do we be what he just said to be? And as much as we can hear the admonition and shake our head and say yes and amen, I'm going to try really hard to do that, guess what? We'll all fail. Well, thankfully, Jesus, after he said, you're not of the world, you're in the world, he said something else. Father, sanctify them with your word. Your word is true. You see, where we will fail, Jesus has already prayed. And the hope that we have, that we can be the church as Christ is calling us to be, is that it doesn't land on our shoulders. It flows directly from Christ as he intercedes for us and prays for us. Father, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. The way this works is by God answering the, the prayers of his son whom he loves and taking the word under the power of the spirit and working in us what's pleasing to him. And so as we hear the challenge to the church today, we pray exactly what Jesus prayed. Sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. And as we do that, we should have every confidence to know this morning that the Heavenly Father, for the sake of Christ, will not fail to hear and to answer and to bless and to sustain us in grace.